Paging Dr. Randy. Paging Dr. Randy. I just got on call and they're paging me already. They want me to do work as soon as I get to work. Come on. Let's go. Yes, you. Come on. Well, I'm Dr. Randy. Nice to meet you. I'm a licensed family medicine physician. Since you're on call with me today, I want to make sure you learn as much as possible. Me and a few of my special friends are here to give you all the tips and info you need to live a balanced, healthy life. Are you ready to be on call with me? I hope so. So let's get it going. Our shift starts right now. Welcome back, healthy people, to On Call with Dr. Randy. Who is a healthy person? You are a healthy person. By implementing some of the healthy information that I have shared with you thus far on this wonderful and glorious podcast. That's why I call you my healthy people. So welcome back, healthy people. And welcome to all my first time listeners to On Call with Dr. Randy. I'm your host. I am Dr. Randy. If you didn't know that, self-promotion, but that's who I am. Dr. Randy. We are rolling with the health information every Wednesday going forward. If I don't put it out on Wednesday, send me a message on IG at underscore Dr. Randy or on my website, drrandymd.com asking, where is my episode, Dr. Randy? I'll probably respond sarcastically by saying, did you check your spam folder? You'll be like, what? And then I'll laugh to myself hysterically. (laughs) If you don't make your own self laugh, who else will? I know I make myself laugh on a regular basis, especially when I'm recording this podcast. What isn't a laughing matter is breast cancer. And this month is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. This week I have on breast surgeon, Dr. April Spencer. Dr. April Spencer is the founder and chief operating surgeon of Dr. Spencer's Global Breast Health and Wellness Center. She is a board certified general surgeon, completed a breast surgery fellowship at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Spencer and I will discuss when should women get screened for breast cancer, how often, what she is looking for when she reviews mammograms, and if something wrong is found, what are the next steps? We always talk about breast cancer screening, but what happens when they actually find something? What do women do? Or men, if they rarely get breast cancer? We will get into all of that. And before we get into the interview, please fill out my survey in the show description so I can learn about you, my healthy listener. It's only eight questions and you can knock it out real fast in less than a minute. And if you want to check out the video portion of this podcast, check out my YouTube channel. Just go on YouTube and search for On Call with Dr. Randy. I should be one of the initial people that pop up at the beginning. So let's go on call with breast surgeon Dr. April Spencer. So welcome back, healthy people, to On Call with Dr. Randy. Today we have Dr. April Spencer world-renowned breast surgeon in Norfolk State University Zone. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Dr. Randy. Thanks for asking. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm making it. I'm making it over here, trying to entertain and educate. It's always a fun time on On Call with Dr. Randy. So I want to have you on here specifically for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And you're a breast cancer specialist. You do a lot of breast surgery. So what made you want to become a breast surgeon? Well, what made me want to become a breast surgeon was just the women that I encountered. And being a female surgeon and scientist, I found it extremely important to have an impact on the disease in a surgical way, but in a manner which affected primarily women. Um, I did a lot of trauma (laughs) in general surgery at Grady Hospital. So I spent most of my early career 
doing gunshots and car accidents and penetrating trauma like stabbings and I learned a lot, saved a lot of lives. However, the the lives that I felt I could impact the most were those individuals that looked like me, uh, particularly women of color, but just women in general. And so that is what inspired me to not only I felt like with breast surgery, I can integrate my hands, my head and my heart. So it was mm. just perfect. All right. So all three of those are kind of intertwined in the profession for you. Yes. So what is specifically the job of a breast surgeon? I know it sounds simple, but what are all the things that you do? Oh, the job is very complex. Um, we do everything from the evaluating the mammograms for prevention and surveillance to doing biopsies to diagnose to being a part of the team lead on the treatment side by surgically removing the cancer and reconstructing if needed. And then lastly, surveillance of those women that have had an operation for cancer to ensure that we're doing everything that we do to keep it from returning. And so we also have to integrate just healthy living, lifestyle choices in the um, treatment armamentarium as well. So it's not just the physical, you know, ordering the chemo, radiation, and surgery and doing the diagnostics, but how can we go from like the breast health to the best health where you're treating the whole patient and not just targeting the disease that's in front of you because it's just a physical manifestation of other things that might uh, need some attention in terms of lifestyle changes. Okay. I didn't know that y'all were that hands-on with um, also reading images as well too. Yeah, I read my images and most breast surgeons do because in order for um, a woman to become prepared for her visit, if they feel something or see something as abnormal, we want to review those films first and the report accompanying the films so that we can start devising a treatment plan based on what we've read, but more importantly, what we see on the films as well. All right, so let's get into screening. When should women start getting screened for breast cancer? Well, Dr. Randy, women should start getting screening on average of age 40, and they'll get screened once a year. Um, many women may want to know what is a screening mammogram? What does that mean? It means getting a mammogram in the absence of disease or the absence of any symptoms. That means you don't have a lump. There's nothing going on. It's just routine prevention. A diagnostic, on the other hand, is where either the, the individual or their doctor may see something or feel something. And so the diagnostic is just individual images of a specific area, and then they'll compare it to prior images. And if you don't have prior images, we'll just take a look at those images themselves and come up with the next step. It's important that I differentiate between a screening versus a diagnostic because oftentimes women do want to know that. Um, another question I often get is, okay, you start your annual screening mammograms at age 40, but what do, you, if, what do you do if you have a family history? So the recommendation that we have is if you have a family history, you'll get your mammogram starting 10 years earlier than your closest relative of diagnosis. So for example, if you have a mom and she was diagnosed at 35, you get screened at 25. If you have um, a sister that was diagnosed at age 40, you get your screening starting at age 30 instead of age 40. So that's how we guide uh, individuals. So it's important to just ask your doctor what screening routine is best for you. But globally, it's 40, starting at age 40, you get your annual mammogram. Okay. So that's why it's very important that you need to know your family history because it may affect you as far as being screened at a certain time period. Not at age yeah. 40, if you That's have someone. That's extremely important, especially. yeah. And But one of the, the mm -hmm. barriers of 
our being able to take care of people properly is just a lot of misinformation and lack of information. So in our communities, when I say our communities of color, and this is the Asian, Pacific Asian community, we see it in the Hispanic or Latino community, we see it in the African American community, the Caribbean community, where people just aren't very forthcoming. It's kind of part of our culture that a lot of us will suffer in silence or we'll just pray that it goes away and not really reach out to family members and friends because we don't want to worry those around us and um, for various reasons. Sometimes worry, sometimes people are just private, but we've got to start having these conversations because it's the education that will help us have better outcomes and less disparities if we just educate each other and inspire each other and start having conversations about it. So we can normalize the conversation of healthcare, which that is one of the benefits of COVID. It put us at the forefront of having conversations about global health and what it means to be healthy, what it means not to be healthy, and what are some of the things you should and shouldn't be doing for just basic health, like washing your hands. So we'll have to use this opportunity, Dr. Randy, while we have everyone's mm-hmm. undivided attention <laughs> coming off of COVID <laughs> to really continue to promote, as you've been doing, uh, medical information through entertainment and education. All right. Do, do you feel like people have been paying more attention to their health since COVID? Absolutely. People have been paying more attention to their health since COVID. People are more aware of symptoms of disease or illness because we told the world things to look out for that may represent um, being infected with COVID. So people became more self-aware of their bodies. They also became more cognizant of prevention, more diligent in washing their hands, more diligent in covering their mouths. I mean, things we should have been doing anyway, but they just became more Mm -hmm. mindful of prevention, but also the importance of um, vaccinations um, in uh, certain disease processes, the importance of protecting yourself and being, um, you know, just very vigilant about just trying to stay healthy. So if you do get exposed to COVID or any illness, your body's able to sustain and recover a lot uh, faster than otherwise. Um, but you know what All else right. it exposed, Dr. Randy, is just the healthcare disparities that we've always known about as healthcare providers. We had lots of conversations, but with COVID, the world had an opportunity to have the rug pulled underneath us where we just exposed everything. But, you know, just the disparities among persons of color and how we have poor outcomes um, when exposed to COVID. But that happens with diabetes and hypertension and many other disease processes. I know you see it all the time. So, so mm-hmm. we just got to kind of use yeah. that awareness to start acting. Like, what are we going to do about it? Right, right. So that's one thing COVID made everyone do is kind of sit down and think about all these things yeah. and kind of realize how much this was affecting our community specifically and how we were going to be able to treat them better mm-hmm. as a healthcare system. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of touched on it earlier, talking about screening mammograms, diagnostic mammograms. Is there a difference in the imaging that is used for both of those? Um, Dr. Randy, there's not necessarily a difference in the imaging modality between a screening and a diagnostic. What is different is the number of pictures that are taking, taken and okay. the type of views. So with diagnostic, usually there's more images and it usually is focusing instead of on the forest or trees, whereas the screening mammogram focuses on the trees. Like, Do we see anything? Um, around. It's more so the forest. Like, is anything standing out amongst the trees? No. The diagnostic, okay, what's going on with that third tree over there next to the bush? And so it zooms in on where a woman may feel symptoms at the lump or behind the nipple if she's having nipple discharge. 
Okay. All right. I never knew that. That I didn't pay attention that much in radiology. So you helped me out with that. So I can <laughs> you know, it's hard to pay explain to some of my patients that when you're looking at pictures in the dark, it's hard to keep your eyes open. <laughs> so I commend our radiology <laughs> colleagues have found their life's passionate work doing that. <laughs> right. Right. I know they're probably in there listening to music and just clicking and looking at all kinds of uh, pictures all day. They're in their own little world over there. So a lot of questions that I get when women come to see me for breast cancer screening, specifically different types of breast sizes. So some women may say, oh, my breasts are too small. I don't need a mammogram. Or other women, is there some kind of breast imaging that I need to get because I have larger breast size. What's your opinion on kind of those two categories? Sure. A lot of women are concerned about the size of of their breasts and also the uh, rumors that they hear about how painful mammograms are. And so independent of the size of the breast, the mammogram is the same. Uh, There is compression involved. It's temporary compression. Um, It can be uncomfortable, but it provides a lifetime information that could be life-saving. So we just go through that temporary discomfort to get to the answers at the end of the, at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> so it doesn't matter the size. Uh, the mammogram is standard. Uh, one of the things that a lot of women oftentimes will ask about is, do I need a 3D mammogram? And many of them don't really understand mm-hmm. what that is. But a 3D mammogram is almost a standard now. It just gives us more high def. It's like high definition television versus the TV prior to the um, high definition. And so it just allows us to have more detail in the imaging. Um, it's really important in women that have dense breast tissue. Just density is the amount of breast tissue that is um, primarily a thickened tissue versus fat. So as we age, that thickened tissue is replaced by fat. So the less fat we have, the more dense the breasts tend to be. And there is association with increased breast density and increased breast cancer. We're not quite sure why that is. So those women especially would get your standard mammogram, but oftentimes will um, request a 3D. And in many places, you don't have to request for that because it's standard of care now in most facilities. Okay. Are there some women categories who are at an increased risk of having breast cancer? There are women that are at increased risk. Just having a woman puts you at, being a woman, you're at increased risk of breast cancer because men can get breast cancer too at a rate about 1% in the U.S. And those things that increase risk of breast cancer, of course, family history, which we it's a minority of the reasons why we see it. There's a genetic component, which is only 5 to 10% of new cancer diagnosis. Increased BMI, so increased body mass index. So having a healthy body weight is important. You can talk to your healthcare provider about what's a healthy body weight for you. And uh, we also mm-hmm. see nulliparity, meaning um, a woman that hasn't had their first live childbirth um, in their lifetime is an increased risk for breast cancer. And of course, if you've had breast cancer in the past, that puts you at increased risk. Um, We found that moderate to high alcohol intake can put women at increased risk, particularly after the postmenopausal age. And um, biopsies. So if you've had some abnormal biopsies, that increased your risk of uh, breast cancer as well. So those are like the broad category in terms of increased risk. Um, but, you know, a lot, Dr. Rain, we can't do anything about our family history or genetic component or our gender. But we can do something about is our lifestyle, you know, making sure we maintain healthy body weight, make sure that we're exercising and um, eating healthy and making sure we do the screening mammograms once a year. 
Right. And chill out from all that wine. If you're drinking more than two to three glasses a night, you may be increasing your risk. <laughs> maybe problematic later. Be good for your heart, but maybe not your breast. <laughs> Right, right. We got to get you to find another outlet to kind of do Come something else. Don't moderate. Don't moderate. Don't take our wine away, Dr. Ray. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, just more moderate. You have a favorite wine? I do have a favorite wine. My favorite wine is Bell Gloss. It's a Clark and Telephone. It's in the Napa Valley. It's a Pinot Noir. So I enjoy that. Oh. And I love red blends. Okay, that, <laughs> We've gone on. Okay. That's a whole separate that's... podcast about wine. <laughs> <laughs> all right so we'll, we'll say that for another time period so let's just run through like a quick little kind of case study well not necessarily case study but more so of an example of like a patient coming in to see me i've ordered a mammogram it's come back concerning i've ordered a diagnostic and it's still concerning and i refer them to you what is usually the next process that goes on with this type of patient? That's a great question. Like what next? Because we as healthcare providers, especially you, Dr. Randy, and I really commend your field because you're like the gatekeepers. You're responsible for so much. I couldn't even imagine the level of um, volume and responsibility and moving parts of your day for all these patients that are coming in with just a variety of concerns. And um, breast cancer or breast patients are very unique in that usually it's panic at the disco. So it's not like your typical patient mm -hmm. that may be coming in to get their blood pressure managed or their cholesterol level checked. It is like pure pandemonium. And they're looking at you like, what's taking so long? You're like, uh, just ordered it yesterday. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it takes a minute. But usually the step will be the woman will come in um, with the report and hopefully with the images. So I can review the images and the report. Then I will set them up to decide what type of biopsy they're going to get. Because if there's something there, we don't need to watch, wait, or wonder. We need to go after and figure out what it is. So the next step after an abnormal mammogram, if they hadn't had their additional views with the diagnostic, is a biopsy. And um, Dr. Randy, just for your audience that's watching, there's two main types of biopsies in the breast. One is done under ultrasound. Usually that's um, the lumps that you can feel, uh, nipple discharge that you may be able to see with an ultrasound. The stereotactic biopsy is a type of biopsy that's done with the aid instead of an ultrasound with a mammogram. And a woman, instead of lying on her back for the ultrasound guided biopsy, they're on the stomach to sample calcium. So calcifications are just salts in the breast. Um, salt is not abnormal, but sometimes it can be associated with a very early breast cancer called stage zero or DCIS, ductal carcinoma in situ, that's before invades it. Uh, usually presents with calcifications or tiny dots that are seen on the mammogram. It looks like salt on a black plate. Um, and so with that, the radiologist will sample with the breast, with the patient on their belly so that the breast can hold still because it's hard to hit a moving target if you are lying on your back. And so that biopsy, again, is different. It's usually done in the imaging center at a hospital instead of in the, in the clinical setting in someone's office, which is what you would get if it was done on an ultrasound. So that would be the next step of biopsy. And then the third step, Dr. Randy, is after the biopsy, we want to know what it is, because depending on what it is, determines the treatment path. And so once we figure out what type of breast cancer, then we determine, okay, does this patient need surgery first, or will chemotherapy be more effective first? And again, tumors now, Dr. Randy, are just as unique as the individual. It used to be a one-size-fits-all where they would get the same surgery, the same chemo, same radiation, essentially. But now we use our best science to look at the biology of the tumor to determine what type of treatment 
will be um, necessary to get the best possible outcome. So that final step will be either surgery in addition to chemotherapy and possibly the addition of radiation, depending on the type of uh, cancer that the individual have and the type of surgery that's selected. Okay. So how much does um, genetics play a role in what type of treatment that they get? And genetics is a very important component. It's not offered to every patient, but I think it's important for women to be their own advocate and at least engage their healthcare providers in a conversation about whether genetic testing is right for them in this setting. So typically there is a form that insurance companies may have or even the genetic companies where you fill out a health questionnaire and it will determine if you're likely to test positive for the gene. So most women that are under the age of 45, they have a diagnosis of breast cancer. They're getting tested genetically. For our women, oftentimes if they're like over 70, typically it's not going to take 70 years for a gene to present itself in the form of breast cancer if they carry a type of genetic mutation that puts them at increased risk of breast cancer. Um, the thing is, Dr. Randy, most genetic mutations, as you know, will show up earlier. And so oftentimes those women are not necessarily offered routine genetic testing. But again, just be empowered to just ask about it, regardless of your age, to see if genetic testing is right for you. The reason why it's important is because it could change the surgery. So if I have a woman that um, is going to get surgery, and typically I may do a lumpectomy where I'm just removing the lump with some normal tissue around it, or I may resort to a total mastectomy if the woman has breast cancer in multiple quadrants or multiple areas of the breast. But if genetic testing is positive for a, gen for a mutation that puts her at increased risk for breast cancer, that means both breasts are equally at risk in the future. So I'll go from a unilateral one-side mastectomy to a double or bilateral mastectomy where both breasts are removed. And sometimes the ovaries may even need to be removed depending on the type of gene that the um, individual tests positive for. So what's kind of the process as far as like a mastectomy? Like, is it a simple surgery and simple recovery? A big part of the process is having a conversation with the plastic surgeon to collaborate on reconstructive options. Many women don't choose to have reconstruction, but I'm very passionate about offering it to all women, especially African-American women, because there's lots of studies that show that African-American women get reconstruction at a lower rate than any other demographic of women that have breast cancer. And so it's important as a surgeon and a scientist, a woman that I offer it. That's why it's so important to have a conversation because there's so many different reconstructive options that are out there right now that a woman can enjoy so they can continue to get on the path to healing. Because again, it's not about vanity, it's about sanity. You know, when you look good, you feel better uh, for, for many mm -hmm. women and reconstructive surgery is a part of that. But it's certainly a conversation because it's, it's a very unique discussion in terms of what is... Um, going to be used to rebuild the breast. All right. And you're specifically talking about having implants placed after having a mastectomy? That is an option. Yeah. And then there's options of certain tissue flaps where you can take muscle and even tissue from the from the abdominal area, where it's essentially like a tummy tuck and breast at the same time. But it does add more time in surgery, uh, more time under anesthesia. So oftentimes we have to have conversations with patients about their health. Certain reconstructive uh, options aren't appropriate for smokers uh, because it's very delicate vascular type of work that goes on during the surgery. So your vessels aren't healthy because you have uncontrolled diabetes or hypertension and, um, and or a smoker, then oftentimes those women have limited surgical options in terms of reconstruction and we usually do an implant instead of tissue-based reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And then so women need to know that it's usually not a one and done surgery. So we try to do our most of our work, at least 85% of it during the initial operation where I remove the cancer. Oftentimes I do my own in-breast reconstruction, 
But if I'm moving tissue from one body part to the next, I absolutely have the plastic surgeon on board and have them do that component of the operation. But I always share with women that there's going to be some editing down the road, whether it's tattooing of the areola, whether it's recreating the nipple, whether it's removing the temporary implant called the tissue expander to a permanent implant, that is a process. So you have to make sure you set the expectation very early on so that patients can understand that this is going to be um, a, quite a commitment other than just the surgery on day one. But it's working. So you're working in collaborative effort with the uh, plastic surgeon. So is that going to be like I a do. separate surgery or do you step out after you've done your part and they come in and do their part? How does that kind of it's work kind out? Of, sometimes it's like tag team wrestling <laughs> without <laughs> the outfits. But um, I usually will start my part in removing the cancer. Once the cancer is out, the plastic surgeon will come in and rebuild the breast. Another option is if a woman is getting tissue moved from, let's say, the abdominal area, and I'm removing the cancer up top. So I'll be up top removing the cancer, and then the plastic surgeon will be down below in the abdominal area, harvesting the tissue in preparation to implant it into the breast. And that situation, we do it together at the same time. Once I'm done, I step aside, and then they come and they rebuild. And a lot of times we'll just stay and, and help each other with our cases as well. So we have a good rapport with our colleagues. So oftentimes so I'll, you know, I'll stay around and assist and they'll do the same. But yeah, so it's kind of like a tag team, but it's just great for the patient. It helps to be more efficient too. So one thing that I always like to do for my listeners is basically take a little peek behind the curtain for certain things. So the peek behind the curtain for this is, does insurance usually cover this? Because we know with breast implants, that's a cosmetic surgery. But with having breast cancer on top of this, does insurance cover this usually from what you've seen? Yes. And it's covered through the Women's Health Care Act. And this was passed over 20 years ago. We advocated on the Hill in D.C. to have every aspect of the surgery covered, including the reconstruction. And usually it's up until five years because some women may want to have delayed reconstruction because they may not be mentally ready or physically, they may need to have some other treatment done before their reconstruction. And so they still can have the option of having it covered by insurance companies and not considered cosmetic. But we had to fight for okay. that. All right. You know, stupid men making stupid rules who don't want to do. Let's not talk about that because we see a lot of that going <laughs> on right now. <laughs> Mm hmm. Yes, we do. So you kind of mentioned the collaborative effort with you and the plastic surgeon. What is the collaborative effort like with you and oncology and developing treatment plans? We speak every day. <laughs> so, yes, I um, have a huge collaborative relationship with the medical oncologist because we all need to know what's going on. We all need to be rowing in the same direction. So oftentimes the medical oncologist may refer a patient to me. More often than not, I'm referring a patient to them, like, hey, I have this patient, she was just diagnosed with breast cancer, she needs to come in and see you as soon as possible. This is her age, this is her stage, this is her specific subtype, and that medical oncologist will determine the treatment plan. Um, the radiation oncologist also is involved very early on. Not every woman will need radiation, but for those that do, they also are sent a referral to the radiation oncologist to talk about the risks and benefits of radiation and the treatment plan, and if it's going to be... Um, you know, the timing in terms of after surgery and the type of radiation. So that is vital, having um, a multidisciplinary approach. So with the treatment, what should women kind of expect as far as recovery process, symptoms that they may have with chemo or radiation 
one thing, like my grandmother, unfortunately, she passed when I was maybe like six months old from breast cancer. And my dad told me he felt like the, yeah, the treatments probably did worse than the actual cancer to her. Mind you, this was in the 80s and they probably didn't have as much uh, good treatment as there is now. But what kind of um, expectations should women have in the recovery process? That's a wonderful question. I'm so glad you brought that up because some so many women will cause the fear of the symptoms to prevent them from getting treatment because they're going based on information that was years old and very dated. Very significant, though, because they heard it from their family members and their friends and what their grandmother may have gone through or their neighbor. And it was absolutely horrible. And the chemo killed her. We now have medications that are patient-specific, tumor-specific, so that we can maximize benefit and minimize the risk and toxicity. And a big part of that is using our best science to look at tumor behavior and biology to determine if a woman needs chemotherapy. And with radiation, we have treatment modalities that have reduced radiation from, in some women, instead of six weeks, they're done in six days and with minimal um, side effects. So in terms of the more common side effects that a lot of women hear about that still exist may include hair loss, darkening of the nails, um, nail bed, neuropathy or numbness in the hands and feet, loss of taste that is reversible um, or metallic taste in the mouth. So loss of appetite um, and nausea, but we have treatments to help with those side effects. And then the hair usually will grow back. You do have a small number of women that will have permanent alopecia or hair loss, but the great majority of them will grow back. Grow back. I tell women all the time, I rather, I have a lot of women to say, I'd rather lose my life than lose my hair like because they're so devastated on the side effects that they're hearing about Dr. Randy, but side effects have gotten a lot better. The chemotherapy has gotten a lot more um, less toxic and more helpful than harmful. So what I advise the women that are out there listening is just know that we don't do the therapy the way we used to, where we just everyone gets the same thing. Now it's patient specific. And then we try it out and see how you do. And if you do terribly, a lot of times the medical oncologist will back off, give you a few weeks off and try something differently or try the other drug again. But you have options and flexibility based on the symptoms that you're having. So it's not like a forced torture for weeks on end, um, which you may have heard about, you know, in the past where it's very paternalistic and this is what you're going to do or else. So, yeah, so mm-hmm. the side effects has definitely um, improved. And I'm sure a lot of women also go through like anxiety and depression symptoms along with that. So hopefully they yeah, also offer maybe some kind of su- support services or therapy. Yeah, that's extremely important. A lot of women, we don't talk enough about mental health and medicine. But it's important that they align themselves with a support group or with a friend group or family member that has undergone breast cancer. Because as much as family and friends want to help, they hadn't walked a mile in that person's shoes. And many women will say, well, I don't want everybody in my business, so I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to have faith. I'm just going to pray this away and it's going to be okay. And all those things are significant in our culture and I understand the importance of wanting to deal with things our own or just to pray and have faith. And you can continue to do that, but it is found to be most helpful when you have someone that you can really depend on for that physical support and reassurance. So you're not suffering in silence with insomnia and anxiety and um, depression because of what's going on. A lot of women have pre-existing mental and mood disorders that are undertreated or undiagnosed and the breast cancer makes it even worse. And then from a relationship standpoint, there's lots of data that show that women that have breast cancer have a higher rate of divorce either during or right after diagnosis. So that can be very stressful as well from an emotional standpoint. You have some of the physical going on and now your relationship 
is being challenged. Um, typically because a lot of individuals, they already have pre-existing challenges in their marriage. The health crisis just puts further burning on an already tumultuous situation. So oftentimes that's kind of the, the tipping point where we say, okay, I can't handle anything else. But it can be very emotionally scarring for women um, to have to go through cancer and a divorce. Right. I, I didn't know those type of numbers. That's, that's wild right there. Yeah. So support groups are important. So, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to try to throw some information in the uh, show description for those who may want some information on um, support groups. Um, what do you tell someone who wants to get screened earlier than age 40? Like, okay, I don't have a family history. I still just want to make sure I'm good. I want to make sure I'm okay. I'm trying to catch it earlier. Let's just say someone who's 35 with no family history but wants to get screened early. Yeah, I would share with them, be mindful if they are insured that the insurance company will pay for the screening mammogram starting at age 40. If you, the patient doesn't have any symptoms and they're younger than 40, they likely will have to pay out of pocket. That's not problematic because a lot of facilities will have mammograms done at low cost or no cost. And then you can always ask for the self-pay rate, which is like, can I get a discount? <laughs> and so the self-pay rate <laughs> is whereby the imaging facility already have prices locked in for those patients that are paying out of pocket. But it's, it's advisable to ask for it. You would assume that most people would volunteer the information, and I'm sure most of the receptionists that are checking the patients in will offer it, but we have to be our own advocates. So I just want the women that are watching your show, Dr. Randy, to be empowered with information and ask what is the self-pay rate, and then they'll be given that information. Yeah. All you got to do is ask the people in the imaging. They will be happy to provide you a sheet that has the price of everything that you need on there. I've been shocked by some of the things that I've ordered before. I'm like, man, it costs this much. But there are certain things that are affordable for you to do. Um, some things are less than $200, $300. So as we wrap up, any words of wisdom that you want to leave for my listeners about breast cancer screening? Um, yes. And that's the ABCs of breast cancer screening and prevention. So the A is just anatomy. Be aware of your anatomy. If you see something, say something. It's not always just a lump that you're feeling. So you could see nipple discharge. You could see redness or thickening of the skin, asymmetry, or the nipple pulling inward that wasn't there before. So any of those sorts of changes, be aware of your anatomy. Be aware of the guidelines. Start your screening mammogram starting at age 40. And also be aware of your family history. Try not to suffer in silence. Ask your older family members questions about what did grandmother die from? What did uncle really uh, succumb to? What type of diseases runs in our family? We need to have those conversations. The B is behavior. Although we can't change our family history or our gene, there are things that we can do to modify, um, modify our behavior to reduce our risks of breast cancer. And that's making sure you have um, uh, increase in your uh, exercise, uh, moderate <laughs> to low alcohol intake. Mm -hmm. Make sure that you're um, <laughs> adding fresh fruits and vegetables to your culinary uh, palate and breastfeed when you can. Um, the C is a big one. And again, that is our culinary choices to make sure we avoid the center aisle and add lots of fresh fruits and vegetables. A lot of patients ask about vitamin supplementation and herbs. Some of those things can interfere with treatment. So you need to let your doctor know what you're taking. But one big one that we know is associated with the increased risk of breast cancer, and that's vitamin D deficiency. It's not a cause and effect, Dr. Randy. The only thing we know is that vitamin D deficiency is associated with the higher rate of breast cancer. We don't know why. So I always encourage women to just take some vitamin D. You can get it naturally with food or take a supplement, but you have to go outside to activate the vitamin, whether it's natural in the food or vitamin form to get the vitamin D that's stored in the skin. 
So those are my ABCs, you know, just your awareness, your behavior, and your consumer choices in terms of what you're eating and what you're putting in your body and also on your body. So be mindful of your beauty products as well um, and make sure that they're non-carcinogenic when possible. Okay. Great job. So y'all make sure y'all learn y'all ABCs specifically <laughs> about breast cancer. And so as always, I always like to wrap up my interviews with Randy's random questions. So I got one random question that I, I like to ask you. You ready, Dr. Spencer? Factoids. What are you going to ask me? <laughs> All right. You ready? I am. All right. So random question. What's your favorite brunch spot in Atlanta? And what do you like to get? When you go to brunch. Oh my gosh. I know what I like to get, but I'm, I, I'm such a foodie, Randy. I'm such a foodie. I know. I did so my research. It's so hard to choose. The, mm-hmm. um, we'll give you top the two. The Four Seasons top has two. the brunch. The Four Seasons, I like their brunch. But my favorite go-to, only one, or can I say two foods? You get two. You okay. Get two. I always order avocado toast. Always, always, always. And then I love, love, love shrimp and grits. When I'm feeling really hungry, I order both. But avocado toast for sure. Okay. She's fancy. What's she your said favorite? Four Seasons. What's your favorite? I love I'm, that. I'm What's always, your... I'm a good um, French toast person. That's what I like to get when I go out somewhere. Now, do you so, make a good a French toast or you just I'm... consume it? Oh, yeah. Oh, I know how to make a good French toast. Okay, I'm, I'm on point checking. with it. We know, how to, we know how to throw a little nutmeg in there. We know what we're doing over here. Stop it up with the egg. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Whip it, whip it, some cinnamon. I'm good over here. Okay. Get that brioche toast. Yes, yes, yes. We, we're on point. So, yes, we'll let you off the hot seat. I appreciate you being on. Um, do you have any social media handles that you want to throw out for people to come get some information sure, from you? Sure, they can you? find me on Instagram or Facebook just under my name at Dr. April Spencer and YouTube. Okay. Okay. And look out for you on BET coming up soon too as well. Mm -hmm. Now, Randy, what Dr. Randy? What's your Insta? I apologize if I don't have it, but I would like to follow you. So it's at underscore Dr. Randy. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We just got on TikTok. Lord help me. I don't I don't know. Somebody told me I need to get on TikTok. But you will not see Dr. Randy shucking and drive jiving on TikTok. You will see him giving out great health information. All right. I like it. All right. Well you take care. Thank mm-hmm. you so much. Who loves brunch? I know I do. I've tried to be more health conscious with my brunch selections when I go out. Instead of getting baking or sausage with my main course, I decide to get fruit cup instead. Self-control is key. Thank you, Dr. Spencer, for being on and sharing some great information regarding breast cancer screening. Women, be sure to get your yearly mammogram. Some places like my clinic even have walk-in mammograms. So. Find out if your clinic has walk-in mammograms or schedule your mammograms so you can know that you're okay regarding breast cancer. Also, make sure to know your results. A lot of women come in and see me and I ask them if they know the results from their last mammogram and they say no. If you're going to a clinic and they tell you, if you don't hear a call from us, everything is okay, 
don't take that as an answer. You need to know your results. So ask them to contact you or send you a letter regarding your results and if you have a negative screening for breast cancer. Get it? Got it? Good. Thanks for listening. Follow me on social media at underscore Dr. Randy. Thank you to those who have filled out my survey. I appreciate it. And if you haven't, knock it out for me, please. And also check out my website, drrandymd.com and sign up for my healthy newsletter. If you like this episode, you'll love the information that I'll be putting out on my newsletter. Share this episode with others. Don't be selfish. Share the information so other people can keep their health in order. I will see you all again next week. And as always, stay healthy physically and mentally.